0: Australian Hunger. I'm your host, Ben. On today's show, I've got an interview with The Eternal. Uh, released their sixth album last year, and they're on tour over the next couple of weeks. So, that interview you a little bit, but before then, um, I went to Progfest. It's a week and a half ago now, since I haven't put out an episode in about a week and a half. Um, but a couple of thoughts I had about that before I get to the interview. So, a really cool event. ProgFest is a really cool series of bands from the kind of heavy prog universe, and I think they all basically did a really, really good job. Um, a few of the bands I interviewed, uh, Bear the Mammoth, Khan, Open Machine, really, really enjoyable bands. Chaos divine, they were really good, makes me look forward to their new album and uh I probably can interview them but let's see how we go um and yeah, a bunch of other really cool bands, a couple of, like thoughts though like obviously good, good, good. Progressive stuff, heavy stuff, enjoyable. Actually, one, one other thought though, uh, before I sort of get into some of my little nitpicking criticisms. The Croxton Band Room, really great place. Um, there's a kind of wide disparity between the main stage and the small stage, which I think it's a little bit better if there's more parody, but I think they both kind of went pretty well. Particularly the main stage is just a really great really great way to watch a, a band play live it's just a nice big air conditioned room um, and it's just set up for a really great experience so a couple of them just my thoughts about like how I think it could be better in the future and I don't think some of, the, some of these are perhaps just me some of these are perhaps things that aren't going to change but that's fair enough so first up the bands which I thought did really well in general were the bands which are a bit different and two kind of reasons sort of support that bands which distinguish themselves are obviously going to stay in your memory. That's one thing. But also, I thought that some of the bands which distinguish themselves, like Khan, didn't have the same sound. And I, I say that specifically because I think that same sound. I don't know whether it was just the fact that the earplugs that I was wearing weren't the best si- sound designed. But I felt that a lot of... I think music has a little bit of problems when it's, when it's mixed in a certain way live. So a lot of the bands, and I'm going to get into this kind of criticism in a sec, a lot of the bands had a sound where it's that heavy bass, the kind of polyrhythmic drumming, and these kind of light, pro- progressive, a little bit techie guitars. And that's fine. Fine sound, good bands. A lot of the bands I I like play there. A lot of the bands that play there I liked. But when you're doing that live, if the bass and drums are too loud, then they're going to very easily overwhelm the... But Sometimes they can overwhelm the vocals, but in particular guitar work. And that was something which I was a little bit disappointed by, that I often felt that the guitars, sometimes the vocals a little bit, were overwhelmed by incredibly sort of aggressive drums and bass. And I, I think if you sort of mix those a little bit, sort of in parody, I think it's a general issue in metal especially, is that bass sometimes, but the drums a lot of the time can often be quite overwhelming, just like incredibly loud. And... You know, I'm sure that makes a really great experience, that kind of pulsating, especially the bass, the kick drum, kind of pulsing through your body as the gig's going along, but it can be problematic if you're kind of going there from audio perspective to that. But also, that kind of leads into my second kind of nitpicky criticism. The... So a bunch of bands had a fairly similar sound. That's not necessarily an issue. You're going to a festival, it's more than likely that it's going to be a similar kind of concept or theme or sound for a bunch of bands. But, like, prog is such a wide kind of... There's so much you can have with prog, so many different kinds of sounds, so many different kinds of bands... And I felt like a lot of the... Maybe it's an issue with prog in general, this current heavy prog scene. But I felt like a lot of the bands had a very similar sound. They, as I was sort of describing before... They kind of have these kind of polyrhythmic, gent, slightly gent influenced um, guitar bass, like a he- sort of heavy bass, um, these sort of clean vocals. I- I'm not describing it very well because I'm not a very good describer of music, despite the fact that this is my fucking hobby, but whatever. <laughs> That's a different, different issue for a different day. Opus of Machines Sky Harbour Circles I'm trying to illustrate that kind of sound this kind of very it's got a very like heavy sort of a thrust to it, but like this sort of light, almost delicate touch in the guitar work, so the, the light and shade very much but it's a very specific sound and I'm not sure I quite capture it like, bands like, a uh, band like Chaos Divine kind of has, you know a sound which could be compared to that but it's not quite the same so a lot of bands I felt had that sort of similar sound and as I mentioned, like, maybe it's just an issue in the fact that that's where the prog world is at the moment, but like for a, a festival called ProgFest, like, I think it'd be much better experience and perhaps wouldn't it pay as, wouldn't get as tended as well, but, you know, I'm, I'm just here to have my opinion. Um, if, if it had kind of a, a wider variety of acts, I didn't necessarily like Toe Hider, but, you know, Toe Hider is something which is different. Iani something that's very different, Khan, I've signed that specifically as something that's different, they can have, like, a greater variety of stuff that's going on, that'd be really cool, that'd be really cool, and if one particular band has too much bass and drums, then, you know, it's something that, which you kind of just go, like, oh, that was the sound, whatever, it's not kind of, like, a theme throughout the night, so I don't know, that's my kind of thoughts on it, but overall, it was a really, really enjoyable night, really, really enjoyable night. So, I interviewed Mark Kelson from The Eternals, a band which I think, like, is gothic, is doomy and Proggy, and has been sort of various iterations of those all those elements have coalesced into a really cohesive whole for this to waiting for the Endless Dawn, which they released last year. So they're going to be actually touring Australia. I can't wait till they're playing in Melbourne. So they're going to be playing February 8th at the Factory Theatre in Sydney, February 9th at the Transit Bar in Canberra, February 16th at the Evelyn Hotel in Melbourne, and later in the year, April 6th, Enigma Bar in Adelaide. So I played a couple of tracks in the album. The first one is Don't Believe Anymore, which is cover an Ice House track. And then the track at the end is Rise From Agony. Now this is Mark Kelson from The Eternal. Mark Kelson is the guitarist and vocalist for Melbourne band The Eternal, whose latest album, Waiting for the Endless Dawn, was released last year. They'll be touring Australia, playing on uh, February 8th at the Factory Theatre in Sydney, on February 9th at the Transit Bar in Canberra, February 16th at the Evelyn Bar in Melbourne, and April 6th at the Enigma Bar in Adelaide. Mark, thank you so much for chatting to me.
1: No problem, my pleasure.
0: Now, for those who aren't familiar with the history of the band, can you just run us through like, how the band came about and what you've been up to for the last you know, over 15 years?
1: Yep, we're about in our 16th year at the moment. I don't know how we've lasted this long, but we have. Um, the band formed in, I believe, the end of 2002, sort of around that area was the initial conception. I used to be in a Doom band in Melbourne called Cryptal Darkness for about seven, seven years. We did about three or four albums. The band dissolved. I uh, formed The Eternal um, and things kind of started to really pick up from there. We've released, I guess, six albums now um, and we've managed to tour Europe several times. America, Canada, uh, Mexico, Japan. We've, we've sort of done the rounds over the years. And we've, um, we've done a lot of sort of support slots for um, some bigger acts like uh, Paradise Lost, and, uh, Catatonia, Amorphous, uh, Anathema, uh, to name a few. So we've sort of had a lot of, um, a lot of really cool stuff happen over, over the years the band's been together, I think. So various lineup changes, but um, I've been sort of a solid through all of that, being the main songwriter and uh, singer yeah. and all that business.
0: This kind of music, it has sort of been—I don't know—it's sort of varied over the course of the band, but like I think there's a core to it that's sort of stayed the same. What what is it sort of captured your attention about the kind of music you play?
1: Ah, it's an interesting thing. Um, I think for me, um, it probably started for me when I was about eighteen, which is a long time ago now. Um, where I first, you know, I first got into the Melbourne scene. I was, I was able to sort of finally join a band, and I joined a grindcore band. I wasn't into grindcore, but um, I, knew, I just wanted to be in a band, and I was young, and it was hard to sort of get into one. Um, but this introduced me from sort of the, the sort of standard metal I was listening to, to more kind of extreme avenues, I guess. And And in that sort of pool of extreme bands, I came across um, I guess around that time, My Dung Bride had released As the Flower Withers and Turn Loose the Swans and Paradise Lost had, had probably brought out Shades of God and Icon and Anathema had done Serenades. And, you know, there was just this whole other thing happening. And it just sort of captivated me because it was, it was, it was extreme, but in a different way. And um, I was really drawn to the melodic aspect of that because I was a very melodic guitar player. So for me, just sort of, it just hit hit my heart a lot more. I was just able to emote with it more, able to connect with what it was all about. And um, that was kind of it for me. I mean, I was always sort of dark, melancholic kind of music ever since then. No matter what band I've kind of been in, it's always had a bit of that edge to it and just just appealed to me. And, um, you know, getting to meet some of those guys and work with some of those guys really just solidified my involvement in that in that style of music. So I think even though, as, as you mentioned, The Eternal has kind of experimented with, with different things over the years from being quite doom metal to, to almost like, you know, rock and and whatever else, um, I, I think the underlining thing was the melodic structure and the, the kind of melancholy maybe in the lyrical content and things like that. I think there's a, a sort of exploration but a consistency, even even from earlier albums I did with
0: of Darkness, I would say. I think that sort of plugs quite nicely into the album. When do you start working on this one? Oh,
1: jeez, about, uh, I guess it's more than three years ago now. Um, Our last album was 2013, when the circle of light begins to fade, and I was kind of a bit unsure what to do with the band after that point. I was a little bit like, um, I don't know, you know, we'd done so many different things, and just kind of hit a bit of a wall with it. Um, but we'd done a live album around that time. Um, we, we recorded it in 2013, but I released it in about 2015, I think. But we played a really diverse set from the whole sort of back catalogue. And it kind of got me re-exploring some of the older stuff we did. And, and you know, I kind of, instead of just looking forward, I spent a little bit of time looking back and sort of absorbing some of my work and my songwriting. And And I kind of decided, you know what, like with this new album don't worry about song length, don't worry about anything, just create something. Just create something without any outside influence, just a dark, heavy piece of music. Um, Don't start the process with any influence. And that's kind of what I did. So it was a very internal thing. So I guess this album turned up being quite long with not many songs and and not really any aspirations of commercial success or anything like that. So um, it kind of revisits you know, elements of, of what we did early on, but then there's some more progressive elements and things that kind of lean towards the future as well, I think.
0: Mm, that was the really interesting thing, um, listening through all your albums, um, preparation for this, this kind of, I don't know, it sort of like felt very consistent with the work you'd previously been doing, but then kind of, you know, hearkened back a little bit, uh, particularly in sort, terms of some of the sort of I know heaviness and as well as some of the um you know particularly the song length
1: yeah there's definitely like i feel like there's a bit of a uh, a nod to my old band, cryptal darkness back from the early early days of my career there's definitely a bit of a nod to that i I couldn't i I don't think it was a conscious thing but when i'm playing some of the songs i can i can feel that
0: the wound yeah i think it's about 20 minutes
2: Let's dive a little
0: bit into that track, because it's, you know, it's it's interesting in the fact that it's 20 minutes, that's not many bands get songs that long, ever. Talk a little bit about how that song came about, and, you know, why it is so long.
1: Uh, <laughs> I can't be really sure why it's that long. It was like, the idea was I wanted to, to sort of make a piece we could make a short film for, um... I wanted to make a pretty bold statement at the start of the record. I think that was the first thing we probably started to put together for the record with a little bit of the jam. Um, And the jam kind of really encapsulated around the first six or seven minutes of the track to where where the vocals come in. We kind of sort of jammed something that sort of had that structure to it. And um, I don't know, I just had this feeling that I I wanted I didn't want to rush things, and uh, we definitely didn't. But I, did. I, I wanted to sort of—I wanted to have a sort of cinematic kind of feel to the whole thing. I wanted to let things really resolve and really build. Um, and I don't think it's like a funeral doom band where where they play the same note and it hangs for fifteen minutes. You know, I, I think we still have a lot of movement in that twenty minutes. Um, but yeah, it just sort of ended up being around the 20-minute mark. It was just a—it was just kind of a, a natural way the piece came out, and I didn't feel like I wanted to cut it down. Like, I didn't feel like I needed to get to the vocals quicker. I felt like it just sort of painted the picture it needed to paint, so that so was good.
0: Mm, you mentioned the, a visual accompaniment, a, a cinematic piece. That is sort of taking form in the music video. Talk a little bit about... Um, like how that came about and its relation to the music.
1: Well, um, we got contacted by a guy in Portugal who was like a video clip maker, and he was he was he wanted to make a video. We have a guy we work here in Australia with, but uh, this kid wanted to have a, have a go at it, and and I was like, well, hey, I've got this song, you know, I've got this idea where we'd like sort of a visual to to accompany that, and um, you know, we came up with a loose narrative, but at the same time. I didn't want to drive it. I kind of wanted to to let him just make a film to it, you know, do do his thing. Um, now, obviously, you know, making a twenty minute film for a song and on on a small band like us, it's tough to, you know, we have to do it on a budget. You know, we we're not a a major label band, so the whole thing was put together on a budget. Uh, and look, I think I think he did a great job. I think he did a great job of it. Um, and I think it, it paints a different picture of the song than I had in my head when I wrote it, which is what I really like. So if you get a chance, jump on YouTube, The Eternal The Wound, check it out. Um, but it brought a lot of different visuals to me than than what the, the song was initially probably sort of about. So it kind of, I like that. I like actually working with guys making our videos and me. Like I used to have a lot of input in it. Now I like to not have much input in it because I like, I like the interpretation that someone gets of the song without me telling them really what it's about, you know? So, so it kind of just happened. It took, look, it took ages, like making the record, I fully engineered mixed and produced the record at my own studio. So he was making the video for quite a long time. I mean, we were making the album for, for you know, two or three years almost. And, um, you know, we had a new guitarist coming around halfway through the process and, um, So his video was shaping up as the song was shaping up. Essentially, I'd be sending him sort of updates over over to Portugal and finally the final mix and, you know, a little bit of guidance on the video, but really what I like about it is it can be interpreted in in various different ways. And I, I interpret differently than the guy who made it. So that's kind of a, yeah, it's an interesting piece and it was a big thing to get done and I'm kind of glad we got it done. I'm kind of glad it was
0: very ambitious of us. I think, like a 20 minute video, it seems like one of those things that kind of can almost be destined towards a sort of a development hell. But yeah, it's no, it's really, it's really interesting. I I, I totally agree with like the the fact that you sort of are seeing different things in it because you're watching it and there's a lot of room for real sort of interpretation about kind of what the the piece is actually trying to say.
1: Yeah, and that was interesting because, um, you know, there's also a bit of a language barrier being that it was done in Portugal and our interpretation of certain things was different and there was only sort of email contact. And, it was, you know, it was, at times it was, it was a little bit bit tough to kind of uh, get across everything we felt and he felt, but we, we kind of got there with it. And, look, you know, I'm, I'm just happy that, that this idea of I had a, of, I will have this one cinematic song with a film, kind of on, on a really low budget and, you know, I mean, to be honest, before the band started the record, we were not, you know, we were not, not sure whether we were continuing or, or what we were doing. So, so to come out of it, sort of this end of things where we're at now is, is quite miraculous <laughs> and, uh, and good, I think.
0: I'm talking a little bit more generally now, like have the, you, the band go about writing the music to the album sort of more generally? Well,
1: generally, I've been the songwriter up up until this point. Um, I can tell you moving forward that that's kind of starting to change. Um, But uh, up to this point, I've been the primary songwriter. Um, 97% of the material, I would say. Um, I've always had a studio background. I'm a sound engineer. And um, so I would pretty much bring in complete demos of material. Um, So a lot of the material is written alone. Um, for the most part um, on Waiting for the Endless Dawn I think a twist in that was that Richie Pope from Dreadnought joined the band um, as the lead guitarist now i was the lead guitar, I am the lead guitarist also but he's kind of a different caliber of lead guitarist than I am I would say if anyone knows Dreadnought um, different style and you know very fluent in his playing but when he came in um, I guess the, the basic structure of the songs was done, but all the layering and, and the kind of additional stuff that we put down, we did together. Like, as soon as he joined the band, every studio session became me and him. Um, and for me, that was quite refreshing because it was the first time I got to work in a kind of a, a team situation when it came to arranging and finalizing song stuff. So, so that's starting to evolve for us now, definitely.
0: Now, what about you? Sort of specifically, Let, let's take you kind of as an individual. How do you go about writing, you know, a, a riff, music, working on a piece? How, how does that work for you?
1: You know, it's really interesting because I, I think back to some of our our songs that were kind of kind of popular, and I don't actually remember writing them. <laughs> they just kind of exist. Um, I don't really have a, like a like a. It's sort of I sit down, I play. If something comes, I'll start to you know put it down in Pro Tools or something like that. Um, I, I often even though I have a nice recording studio will record things really quickly onto my phone with a with an acoustic guitar or an electric guitar unplugged and just hum into the phone and i I have a bunch of those type of files because I like the immediacy of that i don 't want to convolute my ideas with with production always necessarily immediately because you can get caught up in that and lose the initial idea so a lot of the time i 'll just spit down the idea as quick as I can. Um, but yeah, I, I would definitely say my studio is, is definitely a part. Like often when I'm starting to arrange the song, um, I'm putting down production ideas at the same time. So it's kind of like a very like all in- inclusive thing. I don't really sit down and write a song with an acoustic guitar, start to finish with vocals. I sort of sh- start getting a feel for the, for the riff or the or the melody or whatever it is, and then I'll I'll get that down quickly. But then I'll I'll start to even build production ideas on my actual demos as well. So it's sort of, I guess you could say, I do use my technology as a songwriting tool as
0: well. What about the lyrics? Where do they come into the process?
1: So even though lyrics are an important part of, of what we do, I don't generally write them first. I generally um, write the music first. Uh, I'll generally start humming in melodies, um, look, might, we're actually writing some new material now. And I've, I found like at, during the demo process, I'll just spit down a verse, you know, as, as, a, as a rough thing or I'll, I'll scribble down a verse. So sort of like, I start to get little sketches um, of, of what the songs are about. But I generally have to be fairly emotionally turned on to get the lyrics happening. And I find that I need to sort of get a feeling of what the music sounds like before I write the lyrics for it. So i want to I want to get a feeling for the mood before so the mood needs to fit my mood to get get the lyrics down if you know what I mean so it's kind of like a, a relationship but I do I definitely it's music and, and vocals and lyrics second for the most part
0: you you mentioned um, i th- I think this is probably the right word uh, the word uh, melancholy up the top of the interview and I think that sort of captures a lot of the kind of feeling of the lyrics. Is that something yeah. you kind of draw from your own personal experiences, uh, like things that you are imbibing, you know, media or anything like that? How, how does how does the kind of inspiration for them come about?
1: I mean, look, it's all most of our stuff is introspective, and it's written from my own personal, um, you know, life experiences. We don't really write about external. Um, you know, I think we have one song that touches on one or two songs that touches on social issues or political issues, um, maybe around the Kartika record, around our third record. I sort of dabbled in that area. Um, but really the lyrics for me are, are kind of a therapeutic type thing. And um, I would say for the most part, I'm, I'm coming from my own internal life struggles, battles, feelings, you know, um, ups and downs, you know. Um, I think... You know, anyone that you know plays sort of darker kind of music is is relatively introspective. You know, and we're not singing about wizards and, and and dragons and stuff like that. It's all very much a. For me, the Eternal is is therapy. You know, if I had to listen to whenever I listen to the album Circle of Light, for example, I'd gone through some pretty hectic life things at that point, and I, I find that like really lights up some feelings in me when I hear that that album because i find the lyrics are just the most personal i've probably written so um yeah it's definitely definitely close to home life experience type of stuff
0: a, a lot of the bands i talk to i think they mentioned the sort of therapeutic aspect of either playing music writing music uh putting the lyrics to it like how, do, how does that function kind of in that way like what is it about, you know, expressing those things that kind of, unknown in some ways, feels therapeutic?
1: I think, you know, I think as a, as a guy, for example, growing up, you know, I'm 42 years old now, um, it's not always, we've not always been brought up to maybe particularly uh, verbalize how we feel about things particularly with each other, if if I'm to be honest, you know, a bunch of guys in the room from my generation, it's not necessarily a way we express ourselves. Um, And I find lyrics were were a really good way for me to to verbally put out the things and and the feelings out into the universe or out to the the listener and share something very personal. Um, And I, I felt it was a good... It was a it was an avenue that I felt really comfortable kind of being able to do that, um, you know. And as life's progressed, I've gotten better at doing it in my normal life. But as a young man, lyrics were really my way to to to, to um, reach out to people and, and share what I was feeling about about things in my life, you know, where maybe I couldn't verbalize it as well um, in in day to day conversations. So. So that's where it kind of becomes a bit therapeutic, I think, where you can kind of um, just just purge yourself a little bit.
0: One of the songs on the album, I think, is a cover song of an Ice House song, uh, Don't Believe yeah. Anymore. Why, why don't you pick that particular song to cover?
1: Um, I just love that song. Um, I, I You know, Ice House was huge when I was in about grade five or six. You know, Man of Colours had come out. It was everywhere. Um And I'd always just had this attachment to my childhood and Ice House. And as I explored the sort of, it left me, but when I was probably in early twenties, I started exploring the back catalog of of Ice House beyond those kind of hits that everyone knows with Ivory, Mullet and whatever else. Um, There's actually, you know, if you think about great Southern land, it's an extremely dark song. It's (laughs) an extremely dark song. Uh, The lyrical content's even really quite dark. So I started exploring some of his back catalog and you know it was a bit new romantic a bit gothic there was a lot of great production for the time and and don't believe anymore just just you know uh, just stuck with me like you know whenever um, I was on a bit of a late night melancholic you know YouTube binge that song would always end up being played and I was always like this is a fantastic song and it fits it fits And I I sung it, and I was like, I can can sing this kind of like this as well. So it's just kind of like, um, you know, I think I'd really like to pay tribute to something Australian that maybe people wouldn't expect us to as well, you know. Um, Because with The Eternal, I've always not wanted... I've always wanted to be... I've not been afraid to do things that aren't necessarily metal, you know. So, um, you know, I've explored whatever I felt. And with this, I thought, we can... We can kind of do an interpretation of this that I think people would even think it was one of our songs. And that turns out to be the case. Many people haven't even realized it's a cover. So, yeah, it's a tribute to, to kind of my childhood, I guess. And also that, you know, Australians have been making really sort of dark and emotive music for a long time. If you look behind the pop hits,
2: I guess. And I don't know who you are All those things I hear you say You talk that way You're a stranger And I I don't know where to begin
0: Ask you a couple of questions about some of the personnel involved in the the record. I'm I'm incredibly bad at pronouncing anything that's slightly not plain English, but um, guy from Swallow the Sun uh, is Miko. Miko, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, Miko, yes, Miko, the singer from Swallow the Sun.
0: From Swallow the Sun, I understand you guys have a kind of go back a little bit.
1: Yeah, so obviously Swallow the Sun have a new album right now, which is number one in Finland today, I believe. So amazing band. Um, And they've just grown phenomenally. Uh, yuha the the guitarist, is just, you know, one of the best, in my opinion. Um, But, yeah, we started on the same record label at the same time, roughly around 2003. We both signed to Firebox Records. And they had their album, The Morning Never Came, I believe it's called. Um, and we had The light of Isolation. So we toured there in 2004 in Finland and we played with them and we met those guys. And, you know, we were kind of both young bands at the time. And um, obviously they have skyrocketed their on Century Media. They're hugely successful and well-deserved. And um, I don't know, the relationship between us just kind of continued. And, and we toured Finland a couple more times and... You know, I'd spend a lot of time in Uvascular, um, where they live, and, you know, uh, I'd sort of become quite affiliated with, with the Finns. I guess you could say I would spend a bit of time there after tours a lot and sort of made a lot of friends with, with a lot of the guys in the Finnish bands. And, you know, I guess they do melancholic music as well. And, um, you know, I'd stayed, you know, with Miko Nico at Miko's house many times and whatever, and, and then, you yeah, know, just with this record, with that song, Like, I just want to do something that people wouldn't expect once again. You know, I thought song was maybe one thing and maybe, you know, the the death vocals, considering we hadn't had that kind of sound in our music for a while was was something else. And I just wanted to sort of, you know, that's not my strongest thing. Death vocals. It's not what I'm great at. I'm I'm, I'm a better singer than I am at that kind of stuff. So if we were going to do it, I wanted one of the people that I thought was the best, so I asked Miko, and, and he said, great. So I, I continued to write the song with him in mind um, with the project. So I wrote the lyrics for him to sing, not for me to sing. I sing a little bit in the chorus, but I wrote it mostly with him in mind. So I sent it over to him, and he graciously did it and sent it back, and there we have it in the Lilac Dusk. It's, it's very cool. I'm very proud of that song, and it was great to make something with Miko as well.
0: So sort of continuing on the line of uh, other vocalists on the album, Emily um, Sayam?
1: Yes, em- Emily
0: Sayam. Emily Sam? She She's from Russia. Like I'm always fascinated by the kind of international connections that people have. How did she get involved in The Eternal? Because I think she's sung in the past couple of records.
1: Well, she actually, yeah, she lives here. She lives. Oh, does now. she? Okay, she didn't, that would make yeah, sense. She didn't at the time. Actually, she's my current scene teacher at the moment. I've just started some scene lessons with her to brush up. Um, but yeah, she's, she's living here in Melbourne, but that's only been for the last five or six years. I actually met her through Duncan Patterson, who used to be an anathema. Um, he had a project called ION, um, back some years ago, before we did Kartika, probably 2007 or something. She sung on it and she was living in Russia. I sung on it and we sort of became friends. We did some stuff back and forth. Then she did Kartika... Uh, when she was over in Russia. And the last two albums, she did the backing vocals here. So our, our voices just sound... And I've done an acoustic show with her here as well. So our voices just work really well together. And I just like the texture of someone else's voice. And she's also a good editor for my vocals because she knows my voice really well. So she actually stops stops me from re-recording things if the feeling is right as well. So I remember on the on the last record... I demoed all the vocals, and they were really raw emotionally and, and you know, performance-wise, and she would not let me re-record them. She said, give them to me, I'm, I'm going to, you know, love them a bit, but, you know, we need to keep these because they're the best feeling and all that kind of stuff. So she's, yeah, it's been an ongoing thing with Emily for, I guess, 10 or so years. Jeez, lifetime time flies, a bit more than that now, now maybe maybe 12 or 13.
0: Sort of speaking about, um, you know, editing, recording, all that sort of stuff, talk a little bit about the production aspects of the album. Um, You know, the fact that you uh, was sort of taking the helm on this one um, uh, to an even greater extent than you hadn't on the previous ones.
1: Well, um, on the, you know, the first record, it was just done at a studio at the time called St. Andrews. And, And looking back, I'm not really happy with that production. I was, you know the guy wasn't that into it. And, um, you know, it, it is what it is. It's the first album. We got it done. We got it out and it's well received. Um, the second album was kind of, you know, I wasn't a sound engineer yet by this point, by the way. Um, but, um, the second album, we worked with a guy named Endel Rivers, who's done Black Majesty and Vanishing Point and a whole bunch of other bands. And, um, that's when my eyes, you know, my, my, my Interest in production really sprung up because he was such an amazing musician, such an amazing producer, and the sonic difference between Sleep of Reason and, and you know Sombre Light are just amazing. So on the third album, I had a crack at sort of tracking a lot of things myself, and we had another guy, but in the end, we still weren't quite there. So Endel had moved back to Estonia, so we went over and he mixed that album um, for us, and. Around the fourth album, we thought we'd try and up the gain. And we actually listed Jeff Martin. He was in the Tea Party for uh, Under a New Sun. And that was, uh, you know, it was a difficult experience. And that's uh, that's probably around the time I actually went and studied and became a sound engineer. I was doing a lot of work in the studio. Um, the album, you know, didn't come out exactly how I'd intended. And although it's a good rock album, I don't really consider it a great The Eternal album. So at that point, I'd made a firm commitment, you know, after losing a lot of money on that record, that I was going to take over the production myself. So I did um, Waiting... uh, Sorry, When the Circle of Light Begins to Fade, the album before the new one, was the first one I did. So that was a a good learning experience. I'd done a couple of full-length albums at this point, but that was sort of the first one I'd done for us. It's always hard doing your own records um, to let them go and whatever else. Um, With uh wow well, waiting for the endless dawn i really have quite a good studio now like i've invested a lot of time and money and i've made a lot of albums for people since since then and um so the production the, the production and the songwriting process are almost intertwined for me because i do write with production in mind so with um waiting for the endless dawn you know it was all done in my studio Obviously, we were in a situation before we started that record where the the band didn't really have any money. We hadn't done anything for a couple of years. Um, we didn't have a record deal. Um, you know, things were sort of up in the air. So really, we had to make an album on on a zero budget. So, um, and that's what we did. <laughs> we worked very well, very tirelessly and and meticulously on on doing the whole thing in my studio. And it's 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 very relaxed that way. Um, I almost like not having an external producer in um, because I do hear the complete sort of thing in my head and, and I and I can sort of, for the most part, achieve that. Um, I would say the record is co-produced by Richie Pote, who's the guitarist now. Um, he has a very strong vision. And I have to say, I don't think the new album would have finished if he didn't um, join the band because, once again, a little bit of external influence where someone says, hey, no, Mark, that's, that's it, let's move on, you know. That's really helpful when self producing, I think. That was a very long winded answer to your question.
0: No, no, no. I'm glad you mentioned Under a New Sun because I read it in an interview. You talked a little bit about the fact that it kind of didn't sound like the eternal to you. Sort of. Well,
1: it sounds a bit like a tea party.
0: <laughs> mm, mm. Uh, but <laughs> what, what what my kind of question is to that is like what's what goes into making an album that sounds like the eternal
1: um i think if you listen to i think if you listen to the new album this is definitely definitely key elements of what the eternal is it's very melodic it's it's very dark um I have a certain way in which I approach my vocals, um, the melodies. When we worked with the external producer and under a new sun, um, look, quickly I'd like to say what I think a good producer does is not impart their own sound necessarily on the artist unless that's requested. I think a good producer, um, you know, looks at what the band's about and then brings the best elements of what that band is about. Um, we were at an interesting point when we did that record where we were kind of, um, you know, we'd just done a big tour. We'd met with some bigger labels. We, we were kind of a, a lot of people talking in our ears and we tried this different thing. We tried a bit of a different formula to what we did. And the producer we worked with, Jeff, really sort of his thing was more imparting his own sound on, on the projects that he did. I think if you listen to a lot of things he produces, that's the thing that's what he does. Um, so immediately you'd be um I, I would look at almost waiting. Uh, sorry. I've got so many freaking long song titles and album titles. Um, when the circle of light begins to fade is almost like the continuation of Kartika in many ways, because it has those sonic char- characteristics. It has the structure, uh, the melodic elements, the, the, my kind of vocal phrasing. Um, I think every singer has a sort of signature thing. And, and, you know, yeah, in many ways working with Jeff, he challenged my vocals and vocal melodies, but I also think he imparted a bit too much of his own tonic characteristic and not, and I think that pushed us too far away from what we all were, which is why the album kind of backfired and left us in a, in a very difficult situation of working out how to continue after that. Um, Because, you know, you kind of shit on your original fan base in many ways, but, you know, I don't think we we would be back where we are now without sort of ex- going down that pathway. So so I'll, I'll stand by at this point.
0: Where where did the title come from for the album?
1: With the album titles, I don't know. They just kind of come. I don't really think about them. Um, I just wake up and there it is. Um, but waiting for the endless dawn. Um, it's based on the little piece at the end, which is actually a Martin Powell. Um, based composition. who's a keyboard player. Um, and what I liked about that piece was it kind of had this, I liked the idea of just 70 minutes of kind of melancholy and then this kind of uplifting piece at the end. And if you look at the cover, there's that girl sort of looking into the, into the you know horizon in this sort of snowy kind of dark um, setting. I liked the idea of hope, you know, I, I, I write from a melancholic place, but I'm not suicidal. You know what I mean? Um, I like there to be hope and, and I like waiting for the endless dawn is kind of waiting for, for that, um, more positive, uh, waiting for something good to happen. Like knowing that there still is a little light at the end of the tunnel. I think, um, being introspective and going through the melancholy aspects of the, of the lyrics and everything. Um, Another way we write melodies is, like, even if you look at, like, um, Rise from Agony, for example, um, it's quite a dark song, but the, and the riff kind of goes down, but the melody kind of lifts up, um, and that's that's sort of another signature of what we do, and, and yeah, so I feel like Waiting for the Endless Dawn is, like, um, has a little bit more hope than, say, a title like um, When the Circle of Light Begins to Fade, you know, that's kind of a bit more of a down a title, so... So for me, I wanted to leave a little bit of um, ethereal um, kind of hope at the end of the
0: record, I guess. And for the artwork, who did you have to do that and what was their brief?
1: Uh, We found that completed. I I think I I was looking at um, dark art or something and, um, you know, some some photo website, and I might have typed in Endless Dawn or something like that because I already had the album title. And I saw this picture and I was, I was like, wow. So I tracked down the guy, um, who did the, did the picture and, you know, he didn't get back to me at first. And then I, I sort of said, look, man, I'd really like to get this artwork. Um, your artwork's stunning. And he actually just goes, yeah, cool. Use it. Don't worry about it. And I'm like, no, I want to, I want to, I want to buy it from you. <laughs> like I, I want to pay for it, man. I want to give you some money for this. And, um, so his name is Byron and he's an American guy. I, I don't know a great deal about him. There wasn't a huge amount of contact. He just he just said, all right, well, whatever you want to pay. And, you know, he uh, he was just a, a hobbyist photographer, I think. Um, so, you know, I offered him some money. I, I made the payment. He gave me all the high-res files. And that was kind of the last bit of contact we had. It was really brief. And it was just a bit of a fluke that that, that artwork just, I think, suits the title so well.
0: Mm, that's very, very interesting. Um, moving on, yeah, to talk- not
1: not done from scratch, not done from scratch.
0: <laughs> moving on to the uh, live shows that you got coming up, um, what are these shows going to look like? Because obviously, the problem that confronts you, um, or confronts many sort of bands who have released a few albums. If you've got a, a rich discography plus a very good new album, so like, what are these shows going to look like?
1: It is hard for the eternal to start putting a show together six albums in. Um, we're doing around a 90-minute set on, on, the, on the headlining shows, um, which, you know, um, we're not young, so it's, it is a bit, it's a bit trying to do these 90-minute sets, I have to say, it's particularly as we haven't played live much in the last couple of years. So we're really sort of working our way back into this. But we'll be trying to cover a fair bit of the discography. We, do, we are, I can confirm we are playing The Wound, the 20-minute song. We'll be playing that in its um, complete form um we'll be playing around three other songs off the new album um we'll be delving back to the first three albums quite a bit as well so as far as um we do not touch under a new sun actually on this tour this will probably the first time we have not um playing anything off that record it just didn't feel i wanted a really cohesive kind of set so I wanted sort of the material that really sort of flowed into each other. We did initially have a few in the list, but when you're trying to sort of, as you said, refine a, a set of of material, and some of our songs are quite long, um, it, it was really tough to get it down to 10. That um, that That really made it feel like a show and not just us playing different songs as well. So... You know, of course, we delve into a couple of our more well-known songs, but we also delve into some stuff that's not as obvious, I think, in the set list. So um, as far as um, the Melbourne show is concerned at the Evelyn, obviously, it's a hometown gig. We have some time to put a bit more production value into that show. So if you are in Melbourne, I would suggest come down and check out that one at the Evelyn. We'll we'll have a bit more of a light show and um, um, a bit more time to sort of execute everything as well. So that should be a really good one on the tour
0: what exactly do you try to do when you play live?
1: Elaborate on that.
0: So like, when when you're playing a show, there's something you're trying to do that you either do well or you do badly. Like, what what is it that you're trying to do that makes a show go well?
1: I'm trying to play well. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I've really sort of put put an emphasis um, on my vocals lately. I've been really sort of um, I've, I've been delving into um, you know, eating habits, health habits, how that affects my singing. Um, I I think it'd be safe to say that over the duration of our discography I've become a better vocalist. Um and I think my vocals live are, are something that make us a little bit unique. So um for this particular round I've been, you know, delving into having some singing lessons again. Uh, trying to get a bit more control over my voice, um, trying to learn how to look after it a bit better so I can last for longer you know, periods. I've toured Europe several times where I've blown out my voice really quite quickly. Um, so a- as a band currently right now, um, we recently did get a new drummer, um, Ando McDougall, and um, he replaced longtime drummer Marty, who just, you know, family issues and whatnot, was not able to continue after... He did play on Waiting for the Endless Dawn, but uh, Ando has stepped in since. So there is this general vibe in in the rehearsal room of, of, um, you know, really delivering something beyond that we've ever delivered before. So that's been a lot of pressure on on the four of us. Um, We're rehearsing longer. We're um, breaking things down in a lot more detail. Um, We're really sort of... uh, putting a lot more pressure on ourselves to, to play at a, at a higher standard than probably ever before. So I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but um, really trying to produce the best performance that, that we ever have on this, on this current tour, I think when we've never like, you know, we're, we're not like a tech fast death metal band Um we're progressive in the sense that we have long drawn out songs that have a lot of movement. We're progressive in that kind of pink Floyd kind of way. We're not progressive in that modern tech kind of way. So really for us, um, the, the difficult thing about playing one of our songs, which I think a lot of people don't realize, um, when they just hear our songs on the surface is there is a lot of nuance and a lot of, um, a lot of, um, melodies and, and riffs repeat themselves in different forms during the songs. And, a lot of the arrangements have a little complex nuances and slight time signatures, but we do it all very subtly. But, like, for example, rehearsing the, the wound is, is a mammoth effort if you get 18 minutes in and make a mistake. <laughs> so, so uh, um, yeah, look, we're, we're just very much on refining the details and just making sure we can sort of hopefully mesmerise the audience with, with, with some, some cool music.
0: A couple of last personal questions about you. Um, yes. When did you start playing guitar and why did you stick with it? Oh, man. I
1: think I started playing uh, when I was about 13. My mother remarried uh, a guy from a Melbourne sort of thrash metal band uh, in the 80s, a band called Renegade, actually. Um, some of the old folk who listen, if they're listening, will probably know that band. And so up until then, uh, you know, I wasn't really into music. I think I wanted to be an architect or something like that. But he sort of came in with, with a bullet belt and a, and a, and a black Strat and had an album out. And I was like, what the hell is this? I've got to do this. So that pretty much changed the path of of, um, of, of what I was all about. And from that point on, I, I just sort of started picking up his guitar and learning. Um, but I was always more interested in Songwriting than being a virtuoso guitar player or anything like that. I was always interested, like you know, pretty much from that point on. I was borrowing the school's four track and trying to make little demo- demos with the Casio keyboard, drums, and you know, trying to build songs. Songs was always my focus. Um, I'm far more, you know, if someone says I'm a great guitar player, that's nice, but if someone says I'm a good songwriter, that that means a lot more to me. That's always been my focus. So I guess guitar's been a tool to me. to to write music it's just the instrument i'm best at um i'm by no means a virtuosity guitar player but it's it's been a great medium for me to be able to to get my ideas out and that's kind of why i've I've stuck it but i'm definitely not a guy that sits there and plays scales for 19 hours or anything that's um that's what pretty much richie's doing behind me when I'm I'm putting the arrangements up in Pro Tools. Um, But, uh, yeah, so guitars just been my, you know, thing. And, of course, along the way, I've, you know, done a bit of drums and bass and keyboards and I've played keyboards on people's records before and occasionally drums and other things. Um, But, yeah, I guess, I don't know. I I do, I have to say, I like guitars. I own about 20-plus of them, so they do have a soft spot with me.
0: (laughs) When do you start um, singing?
1: Singing was just an accident. <laughs> it really was an accident. Um, like, we, I, you know, I joined this Crystal Darkness band and then I was the guitar player. Um, and then I started sort of just doing, like, we had death vocals and we wanted this sort of my own bride, doomy type spoken thing. And then I started doing that. And then the singer left and. I couldn't growl and i still can't really growl very well and um so i started doing this kind of moany deep whingy thing which people actually in retrospect think i was growling which i wasn't and so i started doing that and you know although it was all nice it was very adolescent and kind of angsty and i you know being a melodic guitar player i think that just started translating to my voice i just started trying to to add melody to things so when that band kind of dissolves and and, Crypto, uh sorry, the Eternal Forms. I guess you'll hear the first song on the first album, which is a cruel misfortune. It's very melodic, Paradise Lost type type vocals because um, I found Paradise Lost was an easy thing for me to sort of practice vocal melodies to. Nick Holmes' vocal melodies are very structured and um, not too complicated and very catchy. So for me, I was listening, driving my car around. You know, when I was in my early twenties, just sort of. You know, singing to that and anathema and just trying to get some melody into my voice. And and by that point, I guess I started to like it. Um, it wasn't just because I had to do it anymore. Um, and then with the second album, the producer, Endel, really pushed me. You know, we weren't allowed to use any auto tune or anything like that. Like, I had to sing everything three weeks in there with a the piano and with us making sure we got everything sort of pitched right. And, um, and then I don't know. People started to like my voice, so I just kind of embraced it and just sort of kept doing it. And um, each year, I think my voice has just gotten a little bit better. But I'm by no means—I feel like I was. My destiny was to stand in front of the mirror and be a, a singer or <laughs> anything like that. It just—it just became out of the necessity that no one else would do
0: it. <laughs> Last question: What have you been listening to, yeah. reading, or watching lately?
1: Oh, wow. Like, um, what have been listening to? Well, I've been listening to, I listen to a lot of post-rock type stuff. I like really sort of drawn out, you know, instrumental stuff, like the new Hammock record and, and um, Russian Circles and stuff like that. Um, Mono, uh, the new album out just a couple of weeks ago. Um, I, you know, that's probably a lot of what I have on when I'm like, I'm a teacher as well. So when I'm sort of working on class structures and whatever else, I'm listening to a lot of that stuff because it sort of just calms me down. <laughs> um, and that's normally what I've got on when I'm cooking or, or doing stuff is just instrumental sort of post-rock stuff. But, um, you know, I've been listening to the new uh of the Sun record as well. Um, I'm still quite into Amorphous. That's usually a regular thing on my playlist. And some of the older stuff like Van Halen and dancing and whatever else you know that's that's still there for me but um you know if I need to work and and, and sort of just need some background stuff it's a lot of like sort of post rock stuff for me I think at the moment um, as far as watching um, i'm I'm documentaries guy so you know I never really watch movies or or TV shows i'm all like just consuming documentaries on everything and and I'm very involved in audio production as well so I'm always watching a lot of technical stuff on audio production um reading course structures that's about to hit at the moment as uh, as university is about to start and i'm about to start teaching our uh, kids again so yeah
0: Rise from Agony, and before that we heard Don't Believe Anymore, both by The Eternal from their new album, Waiting for the Endless Dawn. I'm not sure when the next episode is going to come, to be honest, because I have... <laughs> I seem to have hit a little bit of bad luck in terms of booking guests. So I've got four bands who are currently waiting for them to figure out when they actually want to be interviewed, and I've got... I think, three or four bands who have not replied yet, which is never a really good sign. (laughs) So who knows what will happen with them. Um, And then I'm not sure who else I want to interview, to be honest, because, you know, it's mainly Australia-focused. If I don't have metal bands who want to be interviewed, then I don't know, maybe I might try to branch out and see who else I can find, who kind of fits my aesthetic preferences. But until then, um, you know, I'm I'm not going away. I'm just trying to find someone who wants to be interviewed. Um, I could possibly release the Lords of Chaos rant that I did, and I still have to edit. But I think I actually might save that for later in the month, because Lords of Chaos is being shown again in Australia, this time across the country on February 22nd, so maybe a couple of days before that I might finally get that out in the open. But, um, you know, if you've got any thoughts, comments, questions, if you're a band who wants to be interviewed, you can tweet at me at Aushunger, that's A-U-S-Hunger, or you can send me an email, australianhunger at gmail.com. Until then, um, I'm not dead, hopefully. See ya.